0: I am so incredibly grateful to be here and be sober this weekend. Oh, my goodness. And I want to welcome, God, stop it right now. Don't make me do that. Uh, I want to welcome you if you're new or relatively new to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And and if you don't hear anything else this weekend, which is a good possibility, because if you're new, I know you got a lot to think about. Um, <laughs> I want you to hear this loud and clear. Alcoholics Anonymous is the single most greatest thing that has ever happened to me and for me in my entire life. And, uh, woo, uh, I can't even look at you, little Misty. Polly, thank you so much for (laughs) inviting me to come and be with you guys this weekend. I got to let you guys know, um, I've known Polly since I was a newcomer. Um, I crawled into Alcoholics Anonymous, quite literally, <laughs> on the 10th day of October in 1984. I was the ripe old age of 20, and I got sober at this little Alano Club in Hawthorne called the Southwest Alano Club, uh, betterly known, better known as Birch because it was located on Birch Street. and uh, And I got sober around a bunch of folks that looked like I said last night that they were 132 years old, Uh, similar I'm certain to the way that I look to most of you young folks now. Uh, I just, uh, and I came into Alcoholics Anonymous not because I wanted to Uh, stay sober for the rest of my life 24 hours at a time and not because I wanted to uh, look at those things in me that blocked me off from the sunlight of the spirit. I didn't want to do inventory and find out where these things came from. I didn't want to address my character defects because quite frankly they worked for me and uh... (laughs) Like, I didn't want to do any of those things. I just wanted a little break. You know what I mean? I was, like, bone-tired, and I was sick when I came to you. And I just wanted to stay sober for a minute, move out of my car, and find him. Uh cause A&A... There's a lot of hymns in here. And so... Uh, and I have been given, like... Sometimes gracefully handed and sometimes force-fed a life beyond my wildest drunken dreams. And I could not be more grateful. And I uh, and have known Polly since I was lit, bl- like a baby in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and she was best friends with uh, Carol Thornton. And uh, Carol and Dick Thornton were like two of my heroes at Birch. And I used to watch them come in every Friday night. He would bring his little Alanonic wife to the meeting on Friday or Saturday. And and I would look at them and I would see what it looked like to have like a loving, honorable relationship, and I didn't know how to do that. And uh and I would look at my old timers Frank and Francie Priest and they would show me what it looked like to carry themselves with grace and dignity and be in a partnership. And I would look at my friend Kathy Pitts and I would see what it looked like to be a lady in Alcoholics Anonymous. And to give you just a little bit of a snapshot, I came in here when I was 20 years old. I had been discharged from the military, which I'm probably going to get into in a minute, because whatever, Uh, but I had been discharged from the military a couple years early. I had been to a rehabilitation program, and I drank while I was in there on an abuse multiple times before they kicked me out. Uh, I'd been to a psychiatric unit, in Anchorage, Alaska, because when you drink on an abuse more than once, the Navy thinks that it's perhaps grave emotional and mental disorders, so. (laughs) And I had been coming to Alcoholics Anonymous off and on since the time that I was 17 years old, looking at you guys, thinking perhaps if ever I get as bad as you, I might come back. But right now, I got some drinking to do, uh, because I am... That girl in the doctor's opinion that absolutely loves the effect produced by alcohol. So just um, because what I was doing was saying thank you, and I went left real quick, which I'll do a lot this morning. Um, I think the thing that I love the most about Alcoholics Anonymous is the people that I get to walk this journey with. Um... And because I got sober in 1984, uh, there were so many, and there still are, but I'm like super partial to those ones, so many incredible old-timers that walked with me and held me up when my knees failed to do the job. And uh, we are so blessed, you guys. Oh my gosh, we're so blessed. So I also want to thank uh, the other speakers. Uh, that, that were here this weekend. Uh, Magdalena did a great job uh, presenting the Al-Anon program and sharing your story. Thank you so much for that. And Georgia, thank you for staying and thank you to her voice. You're just a little southern firecracker. I love her. <laughs> I'm going to go home with a twang and my home group's going to go, what is wrong with you? Uh, <laughs> But gosh, I just love this thing, and to all of the committee members and the people that have put this on, thank you so much for your hard work. It takes an incredible, incredible amount of commitment and dedication and, and like, what you, you read, like... Uh, it's a thankless job oftentimes but we just show up and we do what we're asked to and and the thing that i that i've learned over the course of 33 years there's a couple but one of the things that i've learned over the course of 33 years is that god doesn't often call the qualifies qualified he calls he qualifies those that he called and so when i'm asked to do something like this i especially when y'all put me on sunday morning like i answer the phone, and I look at my calendar, and I say, of course, because that's what I was taught how to do, and then I think, like, I think you meant to call Tammy P. Uh, Like, I'm Tina A. Like, you, no, no. And then I just show up, and I do what you guys have asked me to do, because that's uh, held me in good stead since the 10th day of October in 1984, and so my, uh, like I said last night, I really, like, I have this idea about what women's conferences are, and I hate them. Um, And I hate them because of all of these old ideas that I come up with uh, that I can look at that started with me when I was a little girl in relationship with other little girls and we're petty and we're vindictive and we want your toy and we're not going to play in the sandbox with you and and you do something wrong and we think it's about us and and there's all of these like hardwired programs that came to me before I even knew what was going on and so I come to women's conferences. And no matter how many inventories I do and no matter how many times I bring these things to God and no matter how many times I be in relationship with you guys, those little index cards like, uh, like my friend Larsine talks about are still alive and prevalent or whatever the heck that word is, they're relevant in the back of my brain and I know that they're there but I come to women's conferences, and I look at you guys, and you break me wide open. Jennifer, wherever she went, I loved her, uh, talked about, like, when we cry, it's either God coming out or God coming in. And, um, and that happens to me when I'm with you. And uh, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous in 1984, I was a, a dishonored veteran. I had been assaulted multiple, multiple times of the biker. It's kind of a little badass. And uh I just as soon hit you as look at you if you crossed me. I did at the Alano Club. <laughs> and so when I come in here and I And I like bear that part of me that I like to keep walls around, and I cry. Like Beth and I were talking about earlier, like my my street creds wrecked when I come hang out with you guys, and uh, and uh, I don't like that. (laughs) So shh. Uh, But the truth of the matter is, like, we are family. We are sisters in recovery. And, uh, and I got sober with this idea of women that was so horrific that I could look at the women in my home group and I could see perhaps what I might aspire to be. But I never believed that I would achieve that goal like you guys were dressed appropriately. You talked about that. Your hair was made up and your makeup was perfect and every other word out of your mouth wasn't the F-bomb. And none of those things were the truth for me. And I came and I looked at you and I thought, I could never. Like, I don't even feel worthy to sit with you. But you allow me to come in anyway. And uh, you keep a little bit of a distance because I'm a little volatile. Uh, <laughs> but you watch me and you know when I need something that you can come to me and I might let you give it to me. Um, But when I was new in Alcoholics Anonymous, I was attracted, as I'm sure most of us were, to the young men, the mans in AA. And I'm so thankful that when I was new, like all of the old timers in my group were, uh, they were old. And I thought, like, (laughs) they're kindly old gentlemen in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, And I was comfortable with them, given my background and my history. And so, I like, it's sacrilegious to say, girl, stock, I'm sure, but it's going to come out anyway because it just seems to be whatever. Uh, when the women in Alcoholics Anonymous told me that the men work with the men and the women work with the women and the men are going to pat my butt and the women are going to save it, I asked Paul Matson to sponsor me because whatever. <laughs> and truthfully, like, that eclectic funky leftover hippie from the 60s with that long gray hair and those bandanas and all the turquoise jewelry and the carpet purse that he wore spoke with this really Shakespearean English accent even though he was from Inglewood California (laughs) he had these black glasses he would push way down on his nose and he would say rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. And he would look right at me, and I was like, yes! Sir! And uh, I asked him to sponsor me because I thought, like, I was kind of cute. And uh, and if I cried, he'd lay off me, and I could, like, work him for a tank of gas and some cigarettes. and Because uh, you know how we do. And uh, he turned into, like... A dictatorial beast like he was <laughs> horrible and I suppose I'm going there because this is step 12 right so it's got to do a little bit about sponsorship and he was awful uh, when I came to you guys I was like I said living in a 1971 MG midget all of the Al-Anons and my home group gave me all of their Alateens clothing that was too offensive for their teenage daughters to wear <laughs> So I had low-cut shirts and mini skirts and fishnets and hooker heels, and I had that 1980s flash dance hair going on like I was a vision for you. (laughs) (laughs) And I would come clippity-clopping into the meeting, and I couldn't sit still, and I didn't want to, and you guys are reading 12-somethings, and I've memorized them, so I don't know why you have to listen to them every single meeting, so I would... (laughs) get up and go talk to you while you're reading and I would go get coffee and go outside and smoke and come back and gotta pee and get up and, and my sponsor put his hand on my leg one time and he shoved me back down into the chair and what he said was, if you get up one more time during a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, you better have piss dribbling down your leg and I was like, <laughs> oh, like what, what? Uh, <laughs> When I was brand new, I got up to the podium and I was going to say something, and I said, my name's Tina, and I'm an alcoholic, and he stood up and said, that's all you know. You'll sit down now. (laughs) And when I had 30 days sober, I was going to share with you precisely what I did, so you could get what I got. Uh... (laughs) as if you'd want it anyway, but I, I was going to share, like, I was 20, and, and truthfully, you guys, I am, a, I am an alcoholic of the pig variety. Um, <laughs> I am throughout the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I honor our singleness of purpose, and I challenge you guys to do the same thing, because if we don't do that, if we, like it talks about in our in our fifth tradition, like shoemaker stick to thy last, right? Better to do one thing supremely well than many things poorly. If we get too far off topic, the people that die in Alcoholics Anonymous are gonna be the alcoholics because we have nowhere else left to go. But the people that we're catering to have lots of other places to go. And I oftentimes am stuck in that spot between wanting to people-please and save your life and relate and honor our singleness of purpose. And, uh, and I'm so thankful that when I was new, I learned that from that beastly sponsor. Like, I will truthfully tell you that if there is such a thing as an invisible line between social drinking and alcoholism, I snorted it when I was 12. And uh, that's about all I'm going to say about that, but... Uh, but I got this sponsor and what he started to do was teach me. Oh my God, teach me how to be a responsible member of the worldwide fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I am so incredibly grateful for that. When he shoved me back down into my chair. He taught me that perhaps what I thought was important and what I wanted to do had to be put on the the back burner because maybe there was somebody sitting behind me that was going to miss what was going on at the podium, and that was the one thing that was going to save their life, and I was being so selfish that I just didn't want to sit down. And when those Al-Anon women gave me all of those clothes, and I used to come bebopping into that meeting because, you know, like... I got to look good because you got to look at me because if you don't look at me, then I'm nothing and whatever. Like I, I don't know how to carry myself as a woman in Alcoholics Anonymous. I dress like a little hooker for lack of a better term. And uh, and I show up and I can't sit still and my behavior is inappropriate and I'm just a train wreck. And uh, Paul taught me how to serve you guys by like I'm sitting at the meeting and he says like, we need a new ashtray putter outer person in 1984. And my hand goes up in the air and I'm showing up 45 minutes early putting two ashtrays equally from the ends of these long tables so that your osteoarthritic little arms could all hit your cigarettes into the ashtray. And I'm the best ashtray putter outer person in Alcoholics Anonymous. And then he took my commitment and he made me your coffee cup washer. And uh, and I'm in the kitchen and I'm washing your coffee cups. I have 30 days sober. And I'm going to share with you why I should be able to talk about alcoholic anda. Because you guys just don't understand. Clearly you have been here since the crust of the earth cooled. And there is new, pertinent, relevant information that I got from my psychiatrist and treatment that I need to pass along to you so that you could help people. And, uh, and I got up and I started talking. Paul was doing that little sponsor squiggle, which is where I learned to talk so fast. And he got up one more time and he's like, you're finished now. And I looked across the room at Dick Thornton, and I'm like, are you going to let him talk to me like that? Like you guys said, let us love you until you can learn to love yourself. And that is not loving behavior. And all of my old timers are going (laughs) So I went into the kitchen, and I washed the ashtrays first. And then I washed your ceramic coffee cups in the dirty water. Sorry, Polly. 'Cause I'm gonna show you, and uh, I want you to know, you guys. When I was new in Alcoholics Anonymous, I did absolutely everything wrong <laughs> that you could possibly do. And and as much as it's like ego deflating at depth, sometimes with 30 years sober, I've done absolutely everything wrong that you could do in Alcoholics Anonymous. Except one thing. Like since the 10th day of October in 1984, I've not once woken up with whiskey on my breath. I want you to hear this, I never want to drink again for the rest of my life, 24 hours at a time. And when you guys told me that when I was new, you never have to pick up another drink, I looked at you and I'm like, God, Tom Woods, you only have three days left. It's gonna be like easy for you to (laughs) never pick up another drink for the rest of your life, (laughs) but I've been afforded the opportunity to hang out with you, and I think it was Jennifer that said when she was talking, like almost from that first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, she fell in love with you, and I want you to know that I love you more today than I ever have and I need Alcoholics Anonymous more today than I ever have like this is the greatest single most gift I've ever received in my life and um and so like I was not gonna go there and I did and now I'm lost so I have to start all over again so my name's Tina (laughs) I uh I'm gonna share with you like I was at the Stateline Convention a couple of years ago, and, and, and I was telling this girl I sponsor that came in from Texas, like, I'm so glad Bob Darrell will never ask me to speak at this conference, because I hate being pigeonholed into a topic, because I'm like Dr. Silkworth describes, in the doctor's opinion, uh, the manic depressive type. Like, I just I'm just a little bit too scattered to be like this, and so... Five minutes later, my friend Scott came up and he said, "What step do you want at the Liberty Bell?" And I was like, "God!" Ah! Uh, and he gave me Step Twelve. And Polly was there, and I got off the podium, and I was like, "That was the worst talk I've ever given in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm quitting." And then Polly called and said, "Like, how about Step Twelve at Girl's Talk?" And And then Ralph called, and how about Step 12 at Woodstock? And I'm like, whatever. Like, I never seem to know anything proper. My sponsor talks oftentimes about alcoholism being like this disease of perception. And my perception is skewed of myself, of you, of the world around me. Like, given me, like, I just don't have a clear view of what it is that's going on. So... The thing that like made me a little happy about step 12 is I'm really not pigeonholed at all, right? Because I can talk about whatever I want. Because it says having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, which means I can talk about any of them, and I'm not off topic, so I'm kind of stoked about that. And uh, And this whole idea of what is a spiritual awakening, right? Our literature describes it as the ability to... I'm gonna hash it up. Uh, See, do, think, feel, believe, whatever, that which I could not do before of my unaided resources. And like having had this psychic change like it talks about in our literature where absolutely guiding forces of my life are suddenly cast to one side and a whole new set of conceptions seem to dominate me. Almost against my own will as a result of taking stupid actions that don't make any sense. And, uh, and so, uh, like, the only way that I know how to do that is to share with you guys a little bit of my story. And so I can tell you that a long time before I ever came to Alcoholics Anonymous or before I ever picked up a drink, I desperately needed one. I was, as Dr. Silkworth says, restless, irritable, and discontented. I was raised in Manhattan Beach in this upper little middle-class beach community, and I went to school with all of these little five-foot-tall... Blonde hair, blue eyed, pretty little surfer chick, tan girls who look like prepubescent Pamela Andersons. I mean, they were just perfect. I see some of you in here today and you can stay because I've worked through that resentment. (laughs) But I was five foot eight when I was in the seventh grade. I had long stringy red hair, buck teeth and freckles. And I looked at you and saw like Pamela Anderson. And I looked in the mirror and I felt like Pippi Longstocking on crack, like uncomfortable in my own skin, something's wrong with me, I don't fit in, I'm not a part of, I'm not good enough, smart enough, pretty enough, like you guys know how to do all these things, you can have relationships and friends, and, and if your friend gets a new friend, you don't have to beat up the new friend, like you can have three friends, like I don't know these things, right? And I don't know where when I'm going to school in the kindergarten and I'm five years old and I'm this cute little freckled face thing that that people want to put in commercials, and I'm teacher's pet, and everybody's going, she's just so precious, she's so precocious, like, look at that little personality. Like, I was an okay kid when I was five, and then when I was five and a half, it was over. And I don't know, I don't know where that came from, I don't know what switch Flipped in my brain to make me not feel good enough or enough anymore but I know that by the time we moved into Manhattan Beach I was desperately broken and there was something wrong with me and I don't know why when I'm in kindergarten I'm stealing your, share, your show and tell toys and, and playing hooky from kindergarten because I know I did something wrong and I can't go back I don't know why. Like, I know those things are wrong, and I don't know why. I have no self-control to stop myself from taking in accept- un- unacceptable actions. I just do this stuff, and then I feel awful about it. And when I was about 12 years old, my best friend Carrie decided we were going to cut school and we were going to drink scotch. I was in the seventh grade. I went to her house. We dove into a fifth of scotch, and something happened to me that day my sponsor says oftentimes that if alcohol doesn't do something for you it'll never ever do anything to you and I remember that first drink of scotch that went down it burned all the way down and it burned all the way up and it burned when it flew out my nose it was awful and uh I can tell you that first drink that actually stayed down, something magical happened for me, like my hair straightened and my teeth shrunk and my boobs grew, like my friend Peggy says, alcohol made me wittier, prettier, and tittier. And I... (laughs) I get it. And, And quite frankly, I'm certain that those things didn't really happen, but I know what happened was my shoulders dropped a couple inches, And that insane crick in my neck went away. And I was able to take a nice, long, deep breath and, like, exhale, like, all... Like, I love the effect that I got from that drink of alcohol. And the problem is, like, I have never been a social drinker. I drank to excess that day. I had a blackout, which I didn't know. I just thought it was just whiskey, Uh, but that was a blackout. I had large memory gaps throughout the course of that afternoon. I threw up. uh, The school called. My mom showed up at Carrie's house because I was in trouble, and we jumped out her bedroom window and climbed over the backyard fence, and I was off on Pippi's first grand adventure. (laughs) (laughs) And we had so much fun that afternoon, like, I am, I'm, like Dr. Silkworth talks about me throughout the doctor's opinion in our big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, I absolutely love the effect produced by alcohol. And later on it says that while I admit that it's injurious, I can't after a time differentiate the true from the false and my alcoholic life seems to be the only normal one. And I start taking actions completely against my character that I would never ever do sober, just in in an effort to get another drink of alcohol. And I will tell you that I will do anything for a drink of alcohol. I ended up in continuation school halfway through my sophomore year because I couldn't show up to school and I had no credits. I took the California high school proficiency exam because that's what you do when you have no credits. And I graduated from high school when I was 16 years old with a proficiency certificate. I went to El Camino College where I did the same thing that I did in high school. I was drunk and loaded before first period. I was leaving campus before I got in trouble. I was running away from home on a continuous basis. And my poor little single mom is like, looking at her only daughter, wondering, or, like, looking for her only daughter, wondering if she's dead or alive, and I'm just gone, and I just don't care. And I would come home, and I would go away again. And I came to Alcoholics Anonymous singing that theme song, the alcoholic theme song, like, my drinking really never affected anybody but me. Like, I hurt myself way more than I hurt anybody else, but I destroyed my mother on a continuous basis for a lot of years, and I can tell you that she is probably more grateful for my sobriety than I am. Like when people, she, she has this habit of collecting alcoholics. She likes to marry alcoholics and, and they like, will talk smack about Alcoholics Anonymous. And my little five foot one mom will jump up and go, don't you ever talk about that program? Like you didn't know Tina. (laughs) And, uh, and she loves you guys by default. And, um, but I was a train wreck. I I enlisted in the military when I was 17 years old. I uh I was working at Burger King because that's the best you could do with a proficiency certificate. And a United States Marine came in in his dress blue uniform to order his lunch. And and I don't know about the rest of y'all, but I love a man in uniform. <laughs> Cub Scouts, football players, sanitation workers, <laughs> grave diggers, like. And I gave this man my phone number because I lived according to the principle if you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it a long time before y'all did. And and I gave him my phone number and it turned out he was a Marine Corps recruiter. (laughs) And he quickly decided that he didn't want to let me into his United States Marine Corps, so he sent me next door to the Navy office. And... (laughs) And I was 17 years old, and I was in boot camp, and I was certain in the morning when I could speak with somebody who was in charge, I was going to be able to explain the nature of the mistake that had been made, and they would let me go home, but that didn't work out. And. I got drunk for the first time in my military career five weeks into boot camp during my work week. I met my first commanding officer and I was almost discharged from the military five weeks enlisted. And, and the only reason that happened is because I was a budding young alcoholic and the opportunity to drink a six pack of beer just happened to present itself to me and I drank the beer. And I got in trouble. and. Uh, And I graduated with my company. I went to A school in Pensacola, Florida, where I was learning to be a cryptologic technician, which means that, hi, which means that I was enlisted to be in Naval Intelligence, which should frighten you. And uh, I had my second captain's mask for drinking on a duty weekend and leaving base when I wasn't supposed to. I got sent back into the class after mine after a couple weeks in the restricted barracks and losing a stripe and some pay for a little while. And they sent me to my first duty station, which was Adak, Alaska. And when I was uh, in Pensacola, Florida, going to A school, I had my first encounter with Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was 17 years old. And I walked into AA, and I listened to you guys talk, and I heard... Like we hear oftentimes, don't listen for, the sim- listen for the similarities and not the differences. I looked at you guys, and I saw all of the things that were different about you than me, and I couldn't stay. And I knew that my drinking was problematic, but I just, like, wasn't there yet. And I went to my first duty station, and... I was stationed on this little Aleutian island off the Kamchatka Strait in Russia. We were spying on Russia during 1982. It was the Cold War era. I'm certain we're gonna be doing it again here in a minute, but whatever. Um, And I was working for the commanding officer of the Naval Security Group on that island. I wore my dress uniform to work every single day and I sat outside Captain Shivik's office. And every piece of classified intelligence that we got from Russia came across my desk and I would type it up and disseminate it and send it to, uh, to wherever it needed to go. The only problem is I'd go have a couple Long Island iced teas on my lunch break and then I would come back and start sending this classified information to the wrong people at the wrong commands. And the Navy frowns on that a little bit. And <laughs> I told my first sponsor, I can't believe they just discharged me. He goes, oh, my God, baby girl, you're a threat to national security. Like, (laughs) I've hated sponsorship from that day to this, because you guys just have this way of looking at stuff that just (laughs) never seems to occur to my feeble little brain. But I want you guys to know that I loved serving my country. I loved being in the Navy. I loved wearing my uniform like there was no sense of pride. that I had ever had. And if anything in my life at that time could have made me stop drinking, it would have been that. Like, I would have given anything. I was going to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm seeing this little command alcohol counselor. He's asking me these questions. Like, do you ever have str- wake up in strange places with strange people and not know how you got there? And I'm telling him, like, I'm a United States Navy sailor. Like, duh. <laughs> and I don't even see a problem with it. I had been assaulted as a young girl. My first sexual experience was a rape when I was hitchhiking when I was 15 years old. And in my mind, I made up that it's much easier to just give it to you than have you take it from me. And so my sexual misconduct was egregious. It was horrible. And I would wake up in the morning and I would hazily remember doing things that I would never ever do in a sober state of mind. And I would hate myself. And I would think, I'm not going to drink because I want to save my military career. Like, I'm going to go to the ANA and I'm not going to drink and I'm going to take the antabuse and I'm going to do whatever you tell me to. And then the pain of being sober and remembering those things and the guilt and the shame and the remorse that I would wake up to on a regular basis would necessitate me taking a drink. And I would stay sober as long as I could stay sober until I couldn't stand it anymore. And then I would drink until I was physically removed from alcohol one more time. And, and Dr. Silkworth says, in our doctor's opinion, this is repeated over and over again, that unless we can experience an entire psychic change, there's very little hope of our recovery. I had the audacity to sit in Alcoholics Anonymous for years and watch people come in and out and in and out, and I would think what is wrong with you? Like, you are right in the middle of the solution. If you would just do what I tell you to, like, you wouldn't have to do this anymore. And, like, the arrogance of that statement today I understand. Like, I understand wholeheartedly, like, this, this spiritual malady, right? This spiritual sickness, this hole in my stomach that only a drink of whiskey will fill. And I am, if I'm not taking actions on a consistent basis to change the way that I think and change the way that I feel and change my relationship with this power that you guys introduced me to, I am doomed to drink again. I must drink again. And I am abundantly clear the longer that I stay sober that what I have is one daily reprieve, one day, one daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual condition. And sometimes that spiritual condition is rocking. And sometimes it's not. And, uh, <laughs> and during those times, like, I come into Alcoholics Anonymous doubting the power and presence of God in my own life for whatever ridiculous reason that I come up with, because if I'm, like, honest and look, there's no doubting the power and presence of, of God in my life, like, ever. But I make up these ideas about why I'm separate from. And the truth of the matter is I am that fancied self-sufficient and failed self-reliant alcoholic that is described in Chapter 4 of our big book. And I love to run my life according to self-will-run riot. It is exciting. And I can, uh... I can, like... Like, lock my eyes on the prize and have it happen. Like, because I'm a strong and independent alcoholic woman. Like, I can get myself into some jackpots like nobody's business. And, uh... And when I am clear, right, abundantly clear that I am in relationship with this loving, all-powerful, forgiving, amazing father that you guys introduced me to, when I know that, when I know that he wants nothing but the best for me and will do anything to help me in my life, it's almost incumbent upon me to turn my will in my life over to the care of that power. So what I do is I make up the story about where he's disappeared. And the truth is, God never does, right? I do. Like, I'm the one that disappears. God has never lost. I am. And so I, uh, I've had this struggle with the idea of a God of my own understanding since I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I was new here, I would tell you, that I didn't believe in God. I wouldn't go so far as to say like I'm an atheist and there absolutely is not, but I would say that I was agnostic. I am, and I will tell you that oftentimes today at 33 years sober, I find myself in those agnostic moments where I'm just not sure. If the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous tells me that deep down inside every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God, and I get up in the morning, and I look in the mirror, and I go, you're not enough. Like, look at you. Your hair's a frickin' mess, and do you remember what you did last week, and you didn't go clean that up, and you didn't make that amend, and, and you judgmental little twit. Like, what the blah, 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 blah. If deep down inside every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God, that means God is here. And so when I wake up in the morning, and I look at me, and I doubt myself, as I do often, it means that I doubt God. In that moment, I'd become agnostic. I'm not certain of the power which resides in me. And and so I've had this problem oftentimes, and I came in here and I would tell you that I didn't believe in God because I didn't want to hear you talk about it. And I would go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you would talk about God, and I was noisy. Like I'm... You know how you suck your teeth? And I'm rolling my eyes, just so you know, like, how displeased I am at your topic of conversation. You talk about God, I get up and drop the F-bomb. Uh, because I can. And uh, I'm just foul. And my first sponsor, God love him, was Agnostic. Well, he was really atheist, but he died of COPD. And so in the moments when he couldn't breathe, he became agnostic. (laughs) Because there's really no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole, right? We believe in something. And so Paul didn't talk a lot about God, which was perfect, because I didn't want to talk a lot about God. And I thought for the longest time that I didn't believe. But the truth of the matter is, as a result of doing some inventory and looking back over the course of my life at the actions that I had taken... The idea of God that I came up with, I got from church when I was a little girl. God's punishing. He's a scorekeeper, and he's vindictive, and he knows every little nasty, rotten, horrible thing that you ever did, and when you die, you are doomed, so why even bother? (laughs) And that's the idea that I brought to you, dressed up in, I don't believe in God. And the truth of the matter is, I thought the things that I had done were so egregious that God didn't believe in me. I thought it was too late that I had done these things that were unforgivable and there was just no way. And so I just wasn't even going to bother. And uh, that first sponsor passed away on my second birthday in Alcoholics Anonymous. I came up to the club to take my little two-year cake at the noon meeting. And you guys came out and got stupid close to me in that way that makes me want to just smack you Uh, Today and you told me that that man had passed away that morning and I thought I was gonna have to go like he was the first completely principled man in my life that wanted nothing but the best for me like he was so incredibly kind to me even when he was being a beast. He cared way more about saving my life than he did sparing my feelings, and he was willing to tell me absolutely anything that he had to do to make me act appropriately, even though he knew the consequences were going to be dire because I was going to get mad. He was amazing. And, uh, and he passed away, and I got this sponsor. Her name was Connie, and uh, every other word out of her mouth was God. And every other word out of my mouth was God. And, uh, <laughs> I had gone through the steps again with that woman, and I was 13 years sober, and I'm on this cruise, and I took her and her husband and my husband and myself on this cruise down to Ensenada, Mexico for our birthday. Both of us have the same anniversary date of uh, October 10th, and we were on this cruise down to Mexico, and I had done, like, just this huge inventory of just what a rotten piece of crap I was at 13 years sober, and... Um, and she had given me some work to do around the sixth and seventh step. Because if, if you just like do your fifth step and then you go like poop, read this chapter, or say this little prayer and go on about your business, you can be two 13 years sober, like living your life according to character defects and shortcomings and not even like you're blind to them. And so Connie had me write down this list of defects of character and she had me write down where I use them in my life because I do like I take anger and anger motivates me it also protects me and keeps me separate from you because I'm afraid you're going to hurt me and so if I'm mad you won't come any closer than this and so like I look at those defects of character and where is it in my life that I use those and then she had me look at this is the icky part where in my life those things hurt me and I by this time I have these two little boys that I love more than life itself like This is where my new concept of God came, right, about 13 years sober. I'm looking at these boys, and I'm like, there is nothing that you could do, uh, like Jennifer said, that would make me love you any less. Like, I love you so much, I would give my life for you. Like, anything that you guys need or want is yours for the taking. Like, you are my heart, like, outside of my body. And I thought I was listening to this speaker take a tape of Chuck Chamberlain, and he said, every morning I get up and say, good morning, Dad, it's me, and I'm reporting for duty. And I thought, like, what if this God of Alcoholics Anonymous really is this loving father, like you guys have talked about, which I never had in my life, and what if he loves me as fiercely and protectively and unconditionally and totally as I love those boys? Just, what if? And my whole fight went away. And I became like convinced of a new conception of a power greater than myself, which I made up all on my own. And I assigned characteristics to, even though the big book tells me that none of us can fully define nor comprehend that power, which is God, but I'm different, so I'm gonna come up with it. And, uh, and I start to create a relationship with a power greater than myself that I did not believe myself capable of doing, nor did I really even think that I wanted. And I'm on the deck of this cruise ship. I'm 13 years sober. I'm dressed in this lacy gown. It's Saturday night of the captain's dinner. And we had dinner at the captain's table and, and my makeup is on and my hair is made up. And I'm looking at myself, like, remember that, like, dirty little girl with yellow eyeballs in the hole in the butt end of her jeans that came in with that acrid homeless stench and lived in a 1971 MG midget. You just had dinner at the captain's table and took your sponsor on this cruise. Like, how do you get here? And I had done this inventory and, and I had come up with this satanic-sized list of character defects that I was at 13 years sober. And all of the places in my life that those things destroyed me. And it was the night of my 13th birthday. I went down to the captain's or down to the frobsbill meeting on the ship to celebrate my birthday and there was nobody there cuz it was a little 3-day booze cruise. And um <laughs> and so I went out on the deck of the cruise ship and I was all dressed up and I was all made up. And I looked like a lady. I was beautiful. I don't know about you guys. I have a really hard time saying that about myself. Like I could look at Georgia and I know I can look at Amanda. I can look at Polly. I can look at all of you guys and you are so beautiful that it takes my breath away. But I look in the mirror and I still see this broken little girl. It just never seems to go away. And I looked beautiful that night and I was standing on the deck of the cruise ship and I was talking to all my old timers that had passed away. And I was telling them like, oh my God, you guys, whoever would have thought that I could have a life like this? And just like they were all standing there on the deck of that cruise ship, I could hear them all say, we did, baby girl. I know that Paul Matson looked at me on the 10th day of October and he saw a sober and dignified woman in Alcoholics Anonymous. I know, that, I know that Frank and Francie Priest looked at me and they saw a wife. And I know that Dick and Carol looked at me and they saw a mother. Like you guys looked at me And you saw these amazing possibilities in a drunken little homeless girl. And I think you breathed everything that I am into my very being. Like, you guys have created me from nothing. Like, in the dream time, I came to be because of you. And I am super, super clear about that. And and standing on the deck of that cruise ship, I also knew, in retrospect, that this god of Alcoholics Anonymous came to me in the only way that he knew that I could have him in 1984 and 1985 and 1990 and 1993. And it was through you guys, right? When I doubt the power and presence of God in my own life, I need to do nothing more than walk into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and look at you. And that doubt goes away, right? My friend Bill Cleveland says oftentimes that God exists in the space between me and you. It's why when we pray, I turn around and I look at you because I see this incredibly large group of phenomenal sober women in here, and I see, like, God hovering over you. Like, we have this collective communication with the spirit of the universe, and it is the single most beautiful thing that I think I've ever seen in my life. and um, So I have a as a result of going through these steps, like standing on the deck of that cruise ship with this list of character defects that I'm gonna humbly ask God to remove, like, cause I think now that I've identified my character defects, I'm gonna work on them. I'm gonna not get angry and I'm gonna stop talking smack and I won't judge you and I'm just gonna tell the truth and I fall short and I fall short and I fall short. And I beat myself up, and I hate me, and I'm a bad member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Why are you like this? Like, I don't have the power to stop doing those things, no matter how bad I want to, no matter how bad I know they hurt me in my life. Like, it says that if God has, like, the power to remove our mania for alcohol, why would he not take away all of these other things that are objectionable, right? And so I'm standing on the deck of this cruise ship and I'm going to humbly ask God to remove my defects of character. And standing there, I realized, you guys, that those things had been gone for a really, really long time. Like, my perception and understanding of who I am as a woman and Alcoholics Anonymous is so twisted. I love that Candace stood up here and said, like, I'm not broken anymore, like, that's a something that I aspire to, I gotta tell you what, because I oftentimes am still broken. I oftentimes still don't know how to handle situations which used to baffle me, but I can tell you that I'm a lot, lot better than I used to be. I uh, married the Prince Charming in my fairy tale. I had two kids that are the apple of my eye that I love more than life itself. Chris and I were married for 17 and a half years, and I gotta tell you, I stayed sober. I went to school, and we bought houses and cars and boats and motorcycles, and we were like uh, we were like the Bill and Lois of Northern California, for crying out loud. Like, I was the clan scene of the Central Valley. Like, y'all are coming to my house, and we're having pool parties and book studies, and I'm sponsoring half of Northern California. And, I love candlelight meetings because you turn the lights off and I glow in the dark. I'm like super sober. (laughs) They used to call us Tina and the Bleeding Deaconettes because you would break a tradition and I'd look at one of my girls and be like, and they would handle it. like It was (laughs) awesome. I don't make fun of that because it's funny, right? But I was, uh, like, super active in Alcoholics Anonymous and sponsoring a ton of girls. And my husband was sober. We had this dream life. And, uh, and all of a sudden, Chris decided that the next step in his spiritual journey would be to prospect for the Hells Angels Motorcycle Club and have an affair with the bartender at Payne's. And so when he left, I thought that all the greasy bikers that he was leaving me for were male. <laughs> and I was wrong on one occasion, at least, that I'm aware of, only because I tripped, tricked him into admitting it. And, uh, and so I am 21 and a half years sober, and my husband leaves. And during this time, like I had given my eldest born to the United States Navy as my ninth step of men, because I'm super creative. <laughs> and Matthew is in Iraq which was not in the game plan. Like, I didn't give him to the Army or the Marine Corps because I wanted him on a boat. And, uh, and he's in southern Iraq and I can't get a hold of my kid and they're, they're bombing the base that he's stationed at and there's IEDs going off all the time and he's a prison guard in southern Buka, and he's not calling home and I am losing my ever-loving mind. And, uh, and Chris is riding off into the sunset with the Hells Angels Motorcycle Club. And my 15-year-old is so mad at his daddy. He starts doing drugs and dropping out of high school. And he's hanging out with these gangsters. And I got two parts of my story coming to life before my very eyes. And I'm hanging on. Like, if you will just do what I tell you to. I can pull it all out of the fire. And nobody is listening to me. And I broke at 21 and a half years sober. I met my sponsor, who at the time was a retired Marine Corps major, his name was Bill, and he lived in Monterey, and I met him at the MBAR convention. And I used to show up to this detox every Sunday morning that we had our meeting at, and and I would sit through that meeting with my sunglasses on so you couldn't see my eyes were swollen shut and I was dying in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous and I couldn't speak and I couldn't let you in. And all I would do was talk to Bill. And Bill would keep telling me, like, just pray, baby girl. Pray for the best outcome for everybody involved. And I was praying until I was blue in the face like I was dying in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I met Bill at that convention, and he told me, pray about it, baby girl. And I found myself standing on the Bixby Bridge in Big Sur thinking, that looks like the easier, softer way in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous, sponsoring a boatload of girls. Who was it? One of our speakers spoke about. Uh, it was Miriam, like that spiritual arrogance that has me in the center of you guys thinking that I have to look a certain way or I'm not going to be accepted in the a like for crying out loud. <laughs> I think I have this image that I have to maintain and I'm standing on this bridge and I'm dying in the middle of you guys and I don't ever want to drink again but I can't do this anymore either and I said one more of those foxhole agnostic atheist kind of prayers I had taken my will and my life back from the care of God because I had to fix it he wasn't doing it right and uh and I said if you're there and I really don't even believe you are like I got nothing like I like help me I got nothing And I believe, you guys, that those are the most powerful words in Alcoholics Anonymous. I believe that my greatest spiritual experience on a continuous basis is my ability to come in and be transparent with you and ask you for help when I think I'm supposed to, like, be different than I am. And uh, if you're new in Alcoholics Anonymous, I pray that you can set whatever it is aside like that self-sufficiency, that like pull myself up by my bootstraps, I got to be a tough chick, like I can't be weak and I can't ask for help. If you can just put that aside for just one second and reach out your hand, I promise you, I promise you with all that I have in me that somebody will be there to reach back. I promise. I give you my word. Um... I have no idea what time I started, and I should probably shut up in a minute. And I already told my closing story, and you already read my prayer thingy, thingy, uh, stand by the door. Like, I, huh? 20 minutes? I'm not doing 20 more minutes. It's a miracle! (laughs) I, uh... I can tell you... Go, oh, is that for me? Um, <laughs> how to do it. I can tell you guys, without a shadow of a doubt, I hear people oftentimes talking about being like... Our literature talks about being inwardly rearranged, right? Having a psychic change, um, being completely different than the woman that came to you in 1984. And it's my experience, you guys, that oftentimes that's not the truth for me. I am, I have been inwardly reorganized and rearranged. And I don't act like most days, the same woman that came to you in 1984. But I am abundantly clear That every defect of character that I had when I came to you still is alive within me. In the 12 and 12, it talks about the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous oh my God, don't forget the frickin' quote, you could say it backwards, are a set of principles, spiritual, thank you Jesus, spiritual in their nature, which if practiced as a way of life, will relieve my obsession to drink and enable me to live happily and usefully whole. And that has come to pass for me. But I am also abundantly clear that when I stop taking regular inventory, regular written on paper, with a pen, inventory, that I share with a sponsor who gives me feedback on where I'm wrong. Um, If I don't do those things, I revert back to the woman that came to you. And the only thing that changed is my breath and my body odor. (laughs) Um, But I also know like, the, the tools in Alcoholics Anonymous are so incredibly powerful for me. I Jennifer talked about it, and I was like, go, girl! Like, I hate it when people talk about my part, right? My part, my part, my part. Talks about my part in step 10, but when we're doing a fourth-step written inventory, it says, I'll paraphrase or not, uh, putting out of our minds the wrongs others had done That means, like, out of our minds and resolutely looking for our own mistakes. Um, I did this inventory after my husband left. And I, like, when I tell you that I shattered, I am like, I shattered. And I spent a year and a half where every time I spoke with the father of my children, I cussed him out, and I made him wrong, and I, you, blah, 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 and physical altercations at double-digit, two-decade sobriety, like we're punching each other, and he's choking me on the living room floor, like we were crazy, and uh, you guys told me to pray for that man, and I did. I prayed for him every single day, and he never burned up in a house fire, so... (laughs) Parent to me, it wasn't working. <laughs> and when our literature says something to the effect of, like, resentment shut you off from the sunlight of the spirit, and the insanity of alcohol returns, and we drink again, I don't think Bill is joking, right? <laughs> I was seething with this resentment against Chris and against his lady and against this God that I had been introduced to and formed a relationship with. Like I was dying of these resentments and, and they had me by my face. So I couldn't even see, like I would look at the actions that he took and I was like, they are so incredibly egregious, like they're justified uh, resentments and, and Jennifer also said, like, and standing on principle, which I'm super good at, like, I ought to be resentful. Like, that was wrong. And, uh, and when I got so sick that I was standing on a bridge and I prayed to walk off that bridge... I went home that night completely, I assure you, not under my own steam, like God walked me off that bridge. Every meeting that I went to, every phone call that I answered, every inventory that I did, especially mine, like all of those things walked me off that bridge. I went home that night and I did this inventory, and I did it differently than I had ever done an inventory before. And I, I think, Bill, in the first three columns, it's ca- a, a, like I lovingly refer to it as a drunk trap. Because we get to pick up the pen and go to town on how bad you were and how you hurt me, and I, like, did it up. Uh, And then I turned the paper over so I couldn't see the first three columns because when I'm looking at it and I'm going to look for the mistakes that I made and I'm looking at what you did, I'm like, well, I really didn't do anything. (laughs) So I turned the paper over. And I put out on my mind the wrongs he had done to the best of my ability. And I resolutely looked for my own mistakes over the course of my marriage. For the last 18 years, where was I selfish? Where was I dishonest? Where did I tell him I'll be home in 20 minutes when I knew it was going to take me 45? Where was I playing supermom because I loved my kids so much that I robbed that man of a relationship with his children? and his kids came to me and not him, and what did that make him feel like? When he couldn't get time off work and I took my kids and my mom on vacation and I left him home to bring home the bacon, baby, uh, what did he feel like going home every night for two weeks without his family there knowing that we were out without him? Like, where did I used to support him in these ideas, whether I thought they were good ideas or not? Like, I was like, baby, that's the greatest thing I have ever heard in my life. My head might be going, lame but like... I used to make him feel like he was honored, like he was nurtured, like he was important to me. And all of a sudden, I'm not doing that anymore. When I can look at those things, where did I manipulate him with sex because I wanted a new couch? And where was I? Miserly with our finances, like, I'm sorry, baby, we can't put a new motorcycle in that or a new engine in that motorcycle of yours because I'm coming up with the down payment of the house. And I got all the money stashed over here and I'm not telling you where it's at. Like. Where did those, Like, when I looked at those actions, I, like, wanted to puke. You know what I mean? Like, I looked at the things that I had done to him, and all of a sudden, why he cheated on me made perfect frickin' sense. Not that it was ever okay to be in, un, in, unfaithful to a partner. Not that the actions that he took were all right by any stretch of the imagination. But I could most assuredly see where I set that ball rolling. And when I called him up the next day and said because I'm spiritual. I need you to shut up. I have some things to say. <laughs> I just didn't want him to talk while I was at it. And I read that list. And I didn't say I'm sorry. I said, when I did this, I was wrong. I can't imagine how lonely you felt when I did this. I can't imagine like how unimportant you felt when I did this. I was wrong, I was wrong, I was wrong. And I can tell you guys that I went to bed that night and I slept like a baby. The hardest thing we do in Alcoholics Anonymous is set aside our pride, set aside our ego, and look for where we might be wrong. (laughs) And the more that I do it, the easier that it becomes. Like, I am much more cognizant of the mistakes that I make in our relationship today than I am of the ones that you bring towards me because I just don't seem to pay that much attention. attention. And the greatest thing at 33 years sober is that I feel like the problems that I have in my life on most days seem to just die of neglect because I come into Alcoholics Anonymous and I do my best to serve you, whether I believe that I'm capable, qualified, I should, it's convenient, whatever. Like, I just serve you. Dr. Bob said in his last talk that, like, It's all about love and service, right? We all know what love is, and we all know what service is. And I believe that if I say that I love something, it is incumbent upon me to serve you. So I will tell you this. If I live to be 100 years old, which I'm planning on. (laughs) Did have a little malignant melanoma, so let's keep our fingers crossed. But if I live to be 100 years old and I do nothing but serve you guys every single day for the rest of my life, I could never, ever repay you for the gifts you've given me, but I promise you I'll spend the rest of it trying. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.